welcome to A History of Jazz, a podcast dedicated to exploring jazz history one record at a time. I'm your host, Arik Devins. It has been a while since our last episode, uh, and I am so glad to be back. Um, I, I want to make it clear that I remain extremely excited uh, to tackle this project, and I'm, I'm looking into ways to produce it more frequently, to be more efficient, to, 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 to do better without cutting down on the quality. Um, I have to say that when I first envisioned doing this project, I, uh, I think I had a little bit of a, um, you know, excited layman's vision of how complicated this would be. You know, I obviously had studied uh, jazz history and I knew kind of the basic outline, but, you know, I, I hadn't really contended with the, the fact that I'm kind of a completionist and, um, and that I would really be looking to tell every story I possibly could. And it turns out that's a lot of work, <laughs> which is uh, not to say that I'm complaining about that. I really enjoy it. I just need to figure out um, how to uh, do it more uh, organized um, so that I can hopefully get uh, get more content uh, to you all in a more regular amount of time. But I also wanted to say that I really I appreciate so much uh, all of the support that I've been getting uh, around this show, um, and uh, you guys are just, you're all the best, and um, and I'm just so, so uh, pleased with um, the reaction from all of you, and it, it just, it definitely fuels me to keep going, and I will do my best to keep rewarding your support with uh, new content. So, with all of that uh, out of the way, uh, this time on this episode, we will return to the story of the original Dixieland Jazz Band, and we're going to talk about what they were doing in 1919. When we last saw the original Dixieland Jazz Band, they had just lost founding pianist Henry Ragas to the 1918 flu pandemic, which was obviously devastating for the band, but it also presented a practical problem. They had been scheduled to leave two days later for a series of concerts in England. Now, Two days was obviously not enough time to find and train a replacement, especially when they were dealing with their grief. So the band asked their London promoter for a month's extension on their trip, which was granted. Now, the band tried various replacement pianists, but they couldn't seem to find anyone that would stick. And band leader Nick LaRocca began to get anxious, and he tried to cancel the London gig in favor of a long-term engagement in Atlantic City but the London promoter threatened to sue for an injunction if the band didn't fulfill their contract. Finally, the manager of W.C. Handy's publishing firm asked for a tryout, and somewhat surprisingly, he got the job. His name was J. Russell Robinson. J. Russell Robinson was born in Indianapolis in 1892, but he grew up mostly in the South, moving from place to place with his family. At an early age, he formed a piano and drum duo with his brother, And they toured silent movie theaters throughout the South, from Macon in Georgia all the way to New Orleans, where Robinson claimed they were known as the hottest piano and drum team in the city. It's important to know that silent films were almost never screened silently. Instead, live musicians would play along to the action, and the best teams were the ones that could enhance the story of the film with their music. Uh, The ability to do this, especially if you were wandering from city to city, likely indicated a proficiency with improvisation, something that would be very helpful if you wanted to be a jazz musician. Now, by 1919, he had published his first composition, which was called Sappho Rag, and he followed it with more than 600 others. 
Uh, When the first records by the original Dixieland jazz band started to flood the South, he and his brother would purchase them and then play along, and therefore they were learning the styles that the band preferred. When he returned to the North a few years later to record some piano rolls for the QRS company, he even started with the original Dixieland one-step. It is therefore somewhat less surprising that even though he wasn't a working musician at the time he tried out, that he was able to get the job. He knew the music of the group backwards and forwards. Alright, so for our first song this time, here's Barnyard Blues. It's one of the first tracks the band recorded in England, and it's one of the first tracks they recorded with J. Russell Robinson in place of Henry Ragas. So here now, Barnyard Blues. It's worth mentioning here that the original Dixieland jazz band were not the first jazz band to play in Europe. The various army bands, most famously the Hellfighters we discussed in the James Reese Europe episode, played throughout the continent during and after World War I. And other bands also headed to Europe. They were just usually less well-known. African-American band leader Louis Mitchell's Jazz Kings, for example, arrived in Paris in 1918, but weren't able to record anything until 1922. Additionally, there were even some bands from England who claimed they played jazz prior to the original Dixieland jazz band's arrival. Now, how much we would consider them jazz bands, I'll leave up to the listener's discretion, but I will say that, to my mind, they're mostly capitalizing on the name. What the original Dixieland jazz band were then were the first already popular European-American band to arrive in Europe playing what we would now describe as recognizably jazz music. And as a result, they had a huge impact on the spread of jazz music outside the United States. Now, the band played at parties and concerts on the ship to stay sharp, and on April 1st, they arrived in the harbor at Liverpool, traveling to London by train the same night. When they arrived at the Hippodrome Theater to meet their producer, he apologized, informing them that all the available beds in London were already occupied, and they'd have to spend their first night sleeping in the chorus girls' dressing room. The next morning, they were inundated with reporters who wanted to know what jazz was, and what the word meant. And uh, true to their racist nature, the band left the London Daily News with the following impression. As to the word jazz, the bandsmen rejected both the current explanations. They will not have it that the word is of Red Indian origin, or that jazz-so is a term of praise in the dialect of the Negroes in the southern states. The word was invented by someone in Chicago. It's possibly a purely onomatopoetic expression. In view of the unkind and disrespectful things which have been said about Red Indians and Negroids and West African savages, it should be stated that the players are all white as white as they can possibly be. Yeah. So that same day, they played a preview show for the journalist in attendance, and the reaction was mixed, with this appraisal from the April 10th issue of The Performer. 
I had an experience the other evening. Whether I'm to be envied or not depends on personal tastes. A semi-private exposition of real jazz by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. At least I was told by Mr. DeCorville that this was THE original Dixieland Jazz Band. And from the noise kicked up, I may well believe him. I am assured that there are only two original jazz bands in America. Why two, I cannot say. I'm told that the other of the two original bands is but an imitation, a fact which seems to clear the atmosphere somewhat. Then I'm told that the Dixieland lot are the original, so it seems that poor America has to be content for the nonce with a mere substitute. Alright, we're going to hear another song now, recorded in London in 1919 by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, and this is called Ostrich Walk. The band played their first show for the general public on the night of April 7th, as part of a musical review called Joy Bells. Now, their first number apparently led to a standing ovation, which was probably started by American soldiers who were still stationed in London and who were much more used to the band and their musical style. That night, though, after their performance, the star comedian of the show, a man named George Roby, demanded that either the band be fired or he would quit the show. Now, he was uh, much more well-known in England than the band at this point, and so the band was fired. Their first engagement in England had lasted exactly one night. However, that one night did lead to the following write-up in Town Topics. The Dixieland Jazz Band appeared in Joy Bells at the Hippodrome last Monday, but since has been withdrawn, presumably on account of that ubiquitous complaint, Influenza. On the occasion of their performance, they gave us a demonstration of undiluted jazz, and it must be admitted despite all that has been thought and said to the contrary. There was a certain charm in the mournful refrains, dramatically broken by cheery jingles, and a miscellany of noises such as one generally hears off. The reporter was also fascinated by the use of solos in the music. At one moment, the whole orchestra would down tools while one member tootled merrily or eerily on his own account, and the whole would resume again, always ready to give a fair hearing to any other individual player who suddenly developed a stunt. The conductor was most urbane about it all, but everyone was perfectly happy, not excluding the audience, who appreciated a novelty not unartistic. Let's listen now to another novelty not entirely unartistic. This is Look at Him Doing It Now.
first job that the band secured after the sudden end at the Hippodrome was at the famous London Palladium, and the star reviewed their performance this way. It's an interesting study to watch the faces of the dancers at the Palladium when the original Dixieland Jazz Band, which is said to be the only one of its kind in the world, is doing its best to murder music. Most are obviously bewildered by the weird discords, but some, to judge by their cynical smiles, evidently think that it is a musical joke that is hardly worthwhile attempting. Perhaps they are right. Paul Mall was even more hostile, although they were quoting from another periodical when they wrote, The original Dixieland jazz band has arrived in London, says an evening paper. We are grateful for the warning. Punch. In spite of the bad press, or maybe because of it, the band did very well for themselves. They alternated between the Palladium and a theater in Glasgow, Scotland, and they were making something like $1,800 a week. Now, to put that in perspective, I did the math, and that would be roughly equivalent to $26,338 today per week. Not a bad life, even when you have to split it five ways. They were also a favorite of Edward Arthur Donald St. George Hamilton Chichester. That is a fun name to say who was the sixth Marquess of Donegal, and was also a close friend of the Prince of Wales, who was the future King Edward VIII. Now, Lord Donegal arranged a command performance for King George. At first, the royalty in attendance didn't know what to make of the band, but supposedly at the end of the first song, which was Tiger Rag, the king laughed approvingly and began to applaud energetically, and I'm sure you're all shocked to hear that the rest of the people in attendance followed suit and the show was considered a success. Here now is another 1919 song from the band. This one is called Lass's Candy. The band originally recorded four sides in England for the British arm of the Columbia Gramophone Company, but the label was so pleased with them that they signed up for seven more. Now, the first four are some of the same songs the band played in the United States, and we've heard some of them here, but the others are jazz renditions of popular dance numbers of the day, and these are the only recordings we have of what the band sounded when they were playing sort of less jazz-oriented songs. Now, uh, the band closed their show at the Palladium in April and they reopened two days later at the Martan Club. A reporter for the Sunday Evening Telegram wrote about their new venue. It is sure some band to dance to, though I'm not sure it's good for the digestion to eat to it. Yet I had to eat because the cakes were so topping. Every sort of foxtrot and jazz there ever was seemed to be danced, but thank goodness the only shimmy shake was done by the pianist. All the tables were taken quite early in the afternoon, so it looks as if Martin's has caught on again. I don't know if it's Martin's or Martan's, I guess I've now done both. 
In fact, the band was so successful at Martin's that it doesn't really matter what the club was called because they changed their name to the Dixie Club. Now, the band stayed for two months, and they alternated with a four-piece tango band led by an English pianist named Billy Jones. All right, we're going to hear another song now from their time in England. This is I've Got My Captain Working For Me Now. Following the signing of the Treaty of Versailles on June 28, 1919, the treaty that officially ended World War I, a host of royalty, dignitaries, and high-ranking officers converged on London's Savoy Hotel for a victory ball. Among the guests were King George, the royal family, General Pershing, the American ambassadors, and all the crowned heads of Europe. The 150-piece Marine Corps band played for the opening ceremonies, and the original Dixieland Jazz Band was hired to provide the dance music. The band opened with a jazz version of the Star-Spangled Banner, and then continued with some of their hits like the Tiger Rag. During the performance, members of the Marine Corps band were supposedly gathering around the bandstand, staring in shock, trying to figure out how such a small band could be nearly as loud as they were. As their original contract with their English promoter neared its end, Loraka managed to get the group signed to a new agency, who got them a job at a club called Rector's. They stayed there for two months, their longest stay at any one club, and eventually the crowds grew to the point that they needed to find a larger venue. They moved to the Palais de Danse, a huge dance hall in Hammersmith. Robinson, the piano player they had added for the trip, didn't approve of the move. He felt that the band was losing its prestige by playing in such a large venue, and he walked out in October, and was replaced by Billy Jones, the pianist from the tango band I mentioned earlier, who had been studying their music during the time they played together at the Dixie Club. They seem to keep getting lucky that they find people who already know how to play all of their songs. The opening night at the Palais, they sold a shocking 5,800 paid admissions. In fact, they were so successful that the Palais reopened in November as a dedicated nightclub. In their first issue, the Palais Dancing News published an interview with LaRocca where he said, Jazz is the assassination, the murdering, the slaying of syncopation. In fact, it is a revolution in this kind of music. I even go so far as to confess we are musical anarchists. Our prodigious outbursts are seldom consistent. Every number played by us eclipsing in originality and effect our previous performance. Laraka, not so much with the humble, but uh, definitely a good self-promoter. Now let's hear one of the first songs the band recorded with Billy Jones instead of J. Russell Robinson. This is called My Baby's Arm. Thank you. 
Everything seemed to be going great for the band, and perhaps a little too great for Nick LaRocca, who was apparently romancing every lady he came across in England. Now, eventually, he enraged Dudley Stanhope, the ninth Earl of Harrington, the father of Lady Kathleen Florence Mary Stanhope, one of LaRocca's many ladies, who chased the band down the docks at Southampton with a loaded shotgun. Years later, a French magazine writer asked LaRocca why they didn't go to France, to which LaRocca replied, I was lucky to get out of England alive. Back in London, they recorded 20 additional sides for the British branch of Columbia Records, including the second, more commercially successful version of their hit, Sudan, also known as Oriental Jazz. The band left England on July 8, 1920 for New York, and we will leave them there on the ship back to the United States. And we're going to end this week with the aforementioned Sudan, and I'll see you next time. Follow along with the show on Twitter at JazzHistoryPod, or check out the website at AHistoryOfJazz.com. Every episode, I'll be including a link to a Spotify playlist of all the songs we heard. You can subscribe in iTunes or Overcast or wherever great podcasts can be found. If you want to participate, please leave a rating or a review. You can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Tiger, and I hope you enjoyed the show. (laughs) ¶¶